Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. No way! We take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy. And today we have an extremely, extremely special guest. Uh, Elizabeth Loftus. Yes, Professor Elizabeth Loftus. Uh, She's a memory expert and a distinguished professor of psychology and criminology at University of California, Irvine, and someone we've been wanting to talk to for a decade? Yeah, we've probably mentioned her on the show, I would imagine, many times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she is a household name if you live in the household of a psychologist. (laughs) Which I do not, but... She's still a household name. Also, if you do the kind of work that Ross and I do, where you're always thinking about deception and perception and how the mind can play tricks on itself, she's a real hero in that world. She is the author of The Myth of Repressed Memory and also Witness for the Defense. And many published articles as well. And if you look for her on YouTube, you can find her TED Talk and other talks she's given. Uh, Just a warning that in the conversation, we do discuss issues of sexual abuse and assault and other touchy stuff. So just be aware. Yeah, just know that's coming. And we we wanted to talk to her in particular during this investigation because she is an expert in memory and, and in particular false memory. So times that... People will come to believe something happened to them that didn't happen, and we're all vulnerable to this. There's almost no doubt that the person listening to this, you harbor some false memories. Mm-hmm. I certainly Including do. both of us, yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's an important element of psychology to understand when you're mm-hmm. talking about things like recovering memories, which Jerry Mungazi and Bob Larson are both fans of advocating for. Yes, so this is definitely in relation to our previous conversations about Jerry Mungadzi, Bob Larson, our, our recent conversation with Jenny Rice, and more conversations to come. So that is the context, and here's Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Loftus. No, my pleasure. We're both very, 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 very big fans of yours. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think we met once at the amazing meeting somewhere around 2012, and I think you had a dog with you. Do you, do you have a dog you bring? No, no dog. But I have been to a few of the TAM meetings. This is an amazing way to start this discussion yeah. with Carrie having I a memory. I need to know. <laughs> I need to know who the dog was. No, you were there. Maybe it was someone else's dog. <laughs> I'm sure it was because I don't have a dog. Uh, okay. I'm I'm actually fucking with you and trying to implant a false memory and you're not <laughs> cooperating. Well, I, okay, in a very... if you planted a memory of, you know, a pizza or something, it might be more plausible. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Well, you should have brought a dog, but I'll let it slide. So you're a memory expert. And it occurred to me, I was thinking about how um, we talk about memory as if we all have a common language around what that is. Mm -hmm. But it's so hard to define. How would you define memory? Well, it is hard to define. But I think of memory as sort of a process, a process by which we take in information from our environment, storing information, bits of information from an experience, uh, then later on trying to retrieve that information to answer questions or tell a story or tell somebody what happened. And at various stages of this process, the memory can fail us. It seems whatever the current technology is of the day, we compare our brains and our memory to that. So, you know, for a long time, it was like a like a telegram or like a phone call. Uh, now we have computers and we talk about short-term memory, long-term memory, hard drives. You just use the term bits. Is that apt at all? What would you say? Is there any good analogy to memory with any of our technology? You're absolutely right that people have used metaphors that change over the years as our technology changes. I, I, I kind of like to think of memory right now as sort of like a Wikipedia page, because the part of memory I, I think about is the part where you can go in there and edit it, but so can other people. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and like Wikipedia, uh, the citation isn't always there. You don't really know where you got that information. Right, because we're we're constantly picking up bits and pieces of information from other sources, other places, other times, and then incorporating it into our memories. And that can cause some alteration or contamination or 
even just a supplementation of, of memory. So there are many different aspects of memory and how it works. Your research uh, that you've been doing since the 70s has focused on how faulty our memories can be and how they can be rewritten or modified as we access them. It, it, I guess the bottom line is false memory and how it can be created and propagated. Can you talk a bit about your research and how one studies memory? Well, back in the in the old days, when I first started to look at uh, memory distortion, I would show people simulated crimes or simulated accidents and then expose them to some misleading information about the event. So, so they might see a car go through a, uh, an intersection with a yield sign before the accident occurred. And then I would suggest to them it was a stop sign and not a yield sign. Um, and when you expose people to misinformation, many people will adopt that misinformation as their own memory. In that example, they'll, they'll tell you, I, I saw a stop sign. Mm. So this phenomenon became known as the misinformation effect. If you expose people to misinformation about some experience that they've had, you can contaminate or distort their, their memory. And studies today continue on this misinformation effect. And the person doing the fooling, so to speak, doesn't necessarily have to be dishonest, right? It might be someone sharing their genuine memory and thereby altering yours. Sure. Out there in the real world, um, people get misinformation when when they talk to other witnesses or when they get interrogated by an investigator who has a, an agenda uh, or a hypothesis about what, what might have happened. When they see uh, media coverage about an event, mm. all of these provide an opportunity for misinformation to uh, become available to someone uh, that has the potential to change their memory. Now, you were talking about having tests where maybe you show people photos or describe an incident and, and then have them recall it later. Are there ways that new tools are being used? What kind of tests are being done now looking at memory? You know, are you playing around with things like deep fakes to make even more implausible memories plausible? Uh, sure. Uh, well, what happened a little later, in, just in terms of chronology, is we and others began to ask just how far can you go with people? Could you plant an entirely false memory into the minds of people for, for something that didn't happen? And we used some rather suggestive techniques to suggest to people that they had experienced uh, events in childhood that would have been either mildly traumatic or sometimes quite traumatic, getting lost in a shopping mall and being frightened getting attacked by an animal, committing a crime as a teenager that, that was serious. Investigators had a fair degree of success in planting these, what we now call rich false memories. And then to get to your question about technology, uh, some, some investigators have used doctored photographs to plant false memories. Mm. One a very well-known one by uh, Wade and Gary and uh, their colleagues just doctored a photograph of some uh, of somebody in a hot air balloon uh, going on a hot air balloon ride. And lots of people in their study then later started to remember this as actually having happened to them. But it was it was all created by the doctored video uh, in that case, doctored photo. Hmm. And then uh, a couple of scientists in Britain, Wade and Nash, they started doctoring videos to contaminate people's memories. And now with deepfakes, I mean, it, it's going to be ever more easy to use these technologies to to affect what people believe and remember. That's kind of scary. But what about people who say that they can remember every day of their lives? Is that a real thing? Oh, well, when you ask that question, it, it makes me think of a very, very special group of people who have highly superior autobiographical memories. So they're called HSAMs, highly superior autobiographical memory. Huh. And they've been studied by my colleagues in neurobiology here at the University of California, Irvine. They've been studied extensively since the mid 2000s. And they're a remarkable special group of people who can remember just about everything they did 
every uh, day of their adult life. And mm. they've been featured on 60 Minutes and uh, 60 yeah. Minutes, uh, you know, the investigators have tried interrogating them and checked on their memories. But one of the things that we found when, when my research group teamed up with these neurobiologists and asked, well, what would happen to these people if you tried to deliberately contaminate their memory in, oh. in one of these classic false memory paradigms? Yeah. And we found that they were, they were just as susceptible to, to memory contamination, despite okay. their special unique memory ability. Oh, wow. And we had thought if... If any group was going to be immune, it might be them, but they weren't. Right. Are there neural correlates to these individuals that you can kind of identify where some people maybe have a especially large hippocampus or, you know, some other uh, brain functionality that helps them either to have a more reliable memory or a more apt memory? Well, neuroimaging has been done by those neurobiologists, um, you know, who have been studying the HSAMs. And they've published their findings, and I, I don't remember what you know what they're showing in terms of the brain structures, but but that work has been done and published. Since Carrie asked about that, I, I wanted to ask you about eidetic memory, and I've always looked at that with some suspicion. The idea of photographic memory is that a real phenomenon, and, and how reliable is that? Uh, I don't think it's a real phenomenon. There was a there was a you know a belief out there that maybe. Some people had this ability. Somebody wrote an article about a, a woman named Elizabeth who had this special ability. Uh, then this investigator who wrote about her uh, apparently married her and w- would no longer give people, a- you know, what wouldn't give Whoopsie. people access to her. I, I think oh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the current position is that this maybe isn't really a real phenomenon mm. that you could sort of, you know, look at a page and walk away and completely see that page in in your mind's eye and just kind of read off of it the way a photographic memory kind of suggests. Do you find that people are better able to remember certain categories or types of information over others? Like for my own example, when I was a kid, uh, my dad, who's a math teacher, he had me memorize pi. He gave me a sheet and I memorized all of the digits that were there, 105. And every now and then I'll go in, right now I'm at 300, but you know, it it vacillates. So I seem to have a really good memory for random strings of numbers and that can be checked out, but that doesn't make me any more reliable when it comes to what I ate yesterday. Can you talk to just categories of information that we remember? Uh, Not really, no. I mean, I, I, people are, interested in different things and you can remember information better if if you're interested in those things yeah so if i'm in the car and listening to the radio and i hear somebody talk about you know baseball scores i'm I'm not going to remember it but if i hear them talk about the stock market which i have always been interested in since Mm -hmm. i was in high school i might remember those numbers that seems to match also with some data I saw, I'm trying to remember what year it was published, but I think in the last 10 years, a study that found that people with ADHD diagnoses were more susceptible to false memory. And it, that seemed to suggest that that attention is involved in some way. And, and like you say, interest, maybe, you know, not being able to sort of lock on to your most boring surroundings also affects whether you can encode those memories to begin with. Does that seem right? I don't know that particular paper on ADHD. It'd be interesting to see what false memory paradigm they were using to study those individuals. But um, as a general rule, anything that leads to a poorer memory in the first place is going to render that memory more susceptible to subsequent contamination. So if your memory is poor in the in the first place because you, you know it's dark and you didn't get a good look maybe because you have ADHD and you're distracted and not paying attention or maybe it's because a lot of time has passed and the memory has faded significantly you can anticipate that that memory is going to be more susceptible to contamination so we've talked about you know ways that people can remember being lost at the mall or going in a hot air balloon, but clearly this has more significant real-world effects uh, that often play out in the legal field, which I think is a particular area of interest for you. What are some of the consequences of having our memories be so malleable? Little bitty 
errors in memory that we probably have all the time may not matter very much. I mean, it doesn't really matter if I make a mistake and I tell you I had chicken last night, you know, instead of a hamburger. But when it comes to legal cases and critical events, now very precise memory can matter a lot. Very precise memory can matter to somebody's freedom, can matter to justice and fairness and the outcome of some legal proceeding. You know, it matters whether the car went through a red light or a green light. It, it, it matters whether the car was going 60 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour. And so these details of memory can be can be crucial to a fair resolution of a legal case. And it matters who committed the crime and whether the, the witness is identifying somebody who's guilty or somebody who's innocent. Yeah. So I, I have seen so many accusations in legal cases obviously many of them are accurate and authentic and true but sometimes they're not and innocent people get uh, railroaded and it's horrible for them for their extended families um and, and others i feel like this is the elephant in the room when people are talking about this subject how does this tie in then to the current cultural understanding where there's a a push to believe women or believe victims. How do you balance that with also trying to get justice and knowing that human memory is so bad? Well, it's a tough one because, uh, again, I, I might see a subsample of all the cases out there. So there are all those cases out there and there are a lot of real true accusations, yeah. but there are also false accusations. And, and, and perhaps it's because I often get involved at, at a litigation phase of, of the process. I'm seeing the most contentious hmm. accusations where they're, you know, they're made and they're denied. But, hmm. um, you know, what I, what I sort of object to and what I see happening is this uncritical acceptance of every claim, no matter how dubious, you're supposed to believe the, the claim and believe the accusation and, and, and not question it. And to question it is, is committing some sort of sin. Well, a lot of little, you know, innocent fish are, are getting caught up in that net uh, along with some guilty ones. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember which of my many, many memory books sitting behind me I was reading this in. Oh, you know what? I think it might have been your biography, Do Justice and Let the Sky Fall, that you were, I, I think it was you or maybe it was in the Tavris essay, someone was was telling a story of an abuser accusing the person they abused of abusing them and sort of then taking advantage of this tendency to believe the first accuser. Mm. <laughs> that was well, a very I, confusing I don't remember sentence. exactly that. For, you know, that book is, was um, kind of a career celebration that resulted in that uh, book, which is chapters contributed by lots of other other people right. uh, to that book. So I, I can't remember that particular chapter or that particular story that someone else might have written. Uh, but it sounds like you're describing a kind of interesting case of something. I believe it was that the uh, it was a custody dispute over uh, a child and the father accused the mother of abusing the child in order to sort of get attention off of him. Poison the well. Yeah, yeah. It turned out that he had, in fact, been abusing the child. But once that first accusation was out, then it gives him some power because there was this narrative out there. Oh, well, OK, false accusations are rare. Mm. This is the first person to make the accusation. It's probably true. And then for years and years, it was difficult for the mother to try to even regain a relationship with the child. So, yeah, just just an illustration of how that principle can't always work this idea of believing the first accusation. Yeah, well, uh, that's an interesting example. Uh, I'd have to go back and look into whatever, whoever wrote that particular example. <laughs> Read your own it. biography. Because, <laughs> you know, be, because it's, um, you know, that was probably 15 years ago or something. Now, I, I uh, it's usually the woman 
What is the process then when you're looking at a case where the stakes are so high? There's people being abused. There's uh, horrific accidents, you know, things where you really do need the truth. We all want the truth. Uh, How do you go about kind of using memory as, I don't know, a guideline? How far does memory get you? And then where do you look for corroborating information beyond that? Usually when I get involved in a case, some there's somebody who's who's got a, a memory and somebody is disputing that memory. Uh, somebody says this happened, maybe gives a whole lot of detail and somebody else says, no, it didn't happen. It never happened. So when I get involved in a court case, generally I'm looking at all kinds of material. Uh, if it's a civil case, for example, the complaints and the interrogatories, the questions, the depositions, uh, if there's therapy involved, the therapist notes. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm looking to see uh, whether there are changes in the story, whether the, the accuser has been exposed to suggestive information that could be responsible for the creation of a, of a false belief or memory. If this is a false belief or memory, I don't declare something false. Uh, I've taken the position for years that without independent corroboration, you can't know whether you're dealing with an authentic memory or one that is a a product of some other process, imagination, suggestion, uh, some other process. And then often I'm analyzing the testimony of uh, an opposing expert because they will get on the stand and in so many words, basically say they believe the memory is real. Hmm. And they'll say all kinds of weird things before for why they believe it's real that are not justified based on the science. So I'm often sometimes disputing that that approach, which I, I think is not warranted. It's not warranted when somebody says, you know, I believe her memories of her father raping her between the ages of five and 16. This is an actual case. Hmm. You know, I believe they're real because she's telling the story today and also because she has an aversion to pickles, bananas, and mayonnaise. Oh, goodness. And this was a memory that she had, quote unquote, recovered. She didn't have it continuously. Oh, yeah, she did. No, she she's uh, recovered memories of being raped between five and 16. OK, so she had recovered, quote oh, yeah, unquote, she, recovered she, the memories. You know, she, th- this was quite a famous case called the Ramona case. And a oh, yes, fabulous okay. book was written about the whole case by a journalist who covered the whole case. This was the case where the daughter goes into therapy when she's a sophomore in college. She's about 18, 19 years old. And out of this therapy, she discovers that her father raped her between the ages of five and 16, forced to have sex with the family dog, Mm. all allegedly buried into her unconscious until something happened that made her aware of these experiences. Uh, She sued her father. And the reason this case became famous and somebody wanted to write a whole book about it is because the father turned around and sued the therapist for planting false memories in the mind of his daughter hmm. and got a judgment from a jury of, of $500,000. Wow. Oh, wow. And is that the case where then the daughter went on to become a recovered memory therapist herself? Uh, yeah, well, that's one of the ones where she did go on. Well, I don't know what, what, how she would describe her, her therapy, but she did go on mm-hmm. to become a therapist. Ugh, this is, I mean, it's so tough. It, these situations create such a, a horrible soup of, you know, just hearing that accusation. Like when you when you mention that story as fabricated as it may have been, it it welled up that disgust response because just hearing about something horrible like that happening kind of taps into that outrage feature that we all have. And so you often find yourself defending what sounds like the indefensible. And you mentioned earlier that you have kind of books by your enemies. You find yourself the target of a lot of opprobrium from people who feel that you're somehow defending the most horrible people imaginable. Can you talk to that a bit, just how you navigate that landscape and some of the criticism you've had to deal with? It it is true that 
Um, particularly, particularly when when I, I co-authored a, a, a book in the '90s called "The Myth of Repressed Memory." Mm. At, at that point, people were just angry, and they would, you know, there were death threats leveled to universities where the, I had been invited to speak. There were threats to scientific organizations that had invited me to speak. There were letter writing campaigns to try to get me fired from my academic teaching position. There were complaints. There were loss, a lawsuit, you know, all kinds of, you know, unpleasant experiences from people who did not like this message. And, you know, things have toned down a little bit, but not completely, not completely. Yeah, it seems like there was a little bump in public understanding of this issue toward the end of the 90s. And now it feel this is just my perception, but it seems like now we've slid back into uh, a belief in recovered and repressed memory in the last few years. Does it feel that way to you? It, well, it does. My research group uh, had a, a, a published just a few years ago a, a paper called Are the Memory Wars Over? Hmm. And then the bottom line is, no, they're not over. Uh, there are still people, you know, advocating these, the, this, what Richard McNally from Harvard calls the repression folklore. Hmm. And, and in the last few years, there's just a, a, a climate about, about accusations. People don't want to hear any skepticism about accusations. And so I feel it's a little bit of a setback for the falsely accused. I, I, I see it in the in the cases of campus sexual assault, mm. where there are probably now maybe at least 400 cases of male students who are suing their universities for wrongful punishment in a Title IX, you know, campus sexual assault case. And, and there are now a number of lawsuits that are rippling through the system. Uh, involving claims of wrongful punishment. So we'll see how how these resolve themselves. Uh, I I worked on on one of these cases where it was actually, I was really happy to be working on this because African-American males suing their university for wrongful punishment in a highly questionable case of, you know, I didn't think they, they should have been punished. And on top of that, some white students uh, who had been accused of a similar something weren't punished as extensively as these African Americans. So that was mm-hmm. that was that was a great warm fuzzy feeling to work on behalf of those students. Yeah, yeah. That that really highlights the problem too, because I don't doubt that there are also genuine cases of rape on campus. Of course. Right. So then, how? Uh, I, I guess the onus then. As I can't think of another word besides shitty, <laughs> as shitty as this is, the onus becomes on the victim to document his or her assaults pretty much immediately after it happens. Is that sort of the only way out of this? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure. You know, when there's a genuine victim, what the best advice is, to, you know, of yeah. course, to, I, I suppose, preserve whatever evidence is, tell the story as soon as possible hopefully be consistent. Yeah. I wonder kind of what the 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 best balance is because, you know, we we live in a society with laws that hopefully preserve the presumption of innocence, but where wherever you sort of set your threshold, you're either going to be sometimes letting the guilty go free or the innocent get incarcerated. Right. What how do we go about responsible laws around memory? and evidence to make for the most just society. Well, this is, the, you know, this is a balance that the whole legal system has, has, to, ha, has to contend with in all kinds of cases. There, there are two kinds of errors that can be made, you know, acquitting a guilty person and convicting an innocent one. And, you know, the legal system, at least there's this maxim out there that maybe it's far worse to convict an innocent person than to uh, acquit a guilty one. How much worse? Someone proposed 10 times worse. Other people are going to not say 10 times worse. Right. Uh, but, um, it, you know, it's not for me as a memory scientist to decide, you know, what 
what that ratio should be out there in the real world in real cases, not just cases of claims of sexual assault or sexual harassment. Yeah. So you mentioned that there are other processes that can influence uh, the development of a faulty memory. And we've been dealing with that pretty directly because we've been taking classes from Bob Larson. Maybe you've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the exorcist. And he very much believes in repression and recovered memory. And when we take his classes Ross used the word soup earlier. This is also a soup of claims. <laughs> he might have someone who comes for an exorcism and walks out believing they have dissociative identity disorder, several alters, also possession. Also, they were uh, um, abused as a child but forgot it. When you look at someone like Bob Larson, <laughs> how do you untangle that net of <laughs> bad science and is there anything that we can we can do about it well uh, you know my uh, i became aware of him when he was supporting the accuser of paul ingram mm-hmm. and um, paul ingram is one of the really famous repressed memory cases yeah. paul ingram became famous when La- lawrence wright uh, was working on a expose of that case for the new yorker and Uh, I did not work on Paul Ingram's actual case, but a colleague, uh, Richard Offshee, did and, uh, you know, essentially wrote a a convincing paper after his work on that case about, uh, you know, about how the Paul Ingram came to confess to these accusations. But but Larson was involved. He appeared on television. I think it was the Sally Jesse Raphael case. He was supporting the daughter. Mm. He seemed to believe every word that she said. I, I'm not sure that there's almost any decent, credible scientist out there who, you know, who knows anything about the Ingram case who thinks that Ingram is guilty. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, Ross, are you familiar with that case? No, not very. It was a really famous case in the in the '90s because um, the police, for a while there, thought that they had the very first satanic ritual abuse case where the accused had confessed. But it turns out those confessions were kind of manipulated and and, and apparently coerced, and that's the kind of thing that uh, Dr. Offshe was able to demonstrate. Because Ingram had confessed and pled guilty, he, he lost a lot of his rights. He, he went to prison. And uh, some of us, including Lawrence Wright, tried to help him get clemency, uh, but, you know, and, and participated in a clemency hearing. Uh, but it, that wasn't successful. He's out of prison now. He's living a pretty, you know, happy life uh, with a, a new family and, um, and a new appreciation of life. But that was just a wild, wild case. Yeah, if I recall correctly, his daughter came to believe that she had been abused because she went to a big retreat, like a church retreat, where there was a speaker who said, well, you know, a lot of people have repressed their memories of sexual abuse, and if you've experienced these different symptoms, then you might be one of them. And often these symptom lists will have things like, you sometimes cry unexpectedly mm. or you uh, you don't always want to have sex when you think you should. Things that are just commonplace experiences. And then from there, you know, devolves into this accusation. So the daughter accused her father. And then the father basically said, oh, well, my daughter wouldn't lie. Mm. So, OK. And sort of worked himself into this belief. Really yeah. just tragic story. It, it was, it really was. And, and, you know, for Paul and his extended family. And anyhow, Lawrence Wright did a beautiful job for The New Yorker and then went on to turn his work into a, a, a book. Yeah, Remembering Satan. That's on my bookshelf <laughs> here. And uh, and he's, he's one of my heroes. He's great. He's Yeah, he's, he's done a lot of great work, including on Scientology, which is another uh, favorite topic of ours. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one too. And I, I just finished reading the end of October, his latest book on plagues. Mm. So, oh, nice. Um, guys, past Ross Carey and past 
Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. I've got to interrupt. Uh, yes, once in future, Carrie. Yes, hello. Um, I just wanted to stop and make sure all three of you have brushed your teeth. Uh, yes, I have. Have you, Elizabeth? Okay. Oh, yes, she's I not have. responding. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> that's that's your Elizabeth. I'm not your known Elizabeth. for my impressions. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a lot like Ella. Um, hey. <laughs> Good point. Well, Ella definitely has not brushed her teeth. Well, Elizabeth and everyone should remember to keep their teeth clean. To practice it's safe important. oral hygiene. Yeah, it is important. And if you don't have a good toothbrush that you love, we recommend a Quip. We both use Quips. We do. Little electric toothbrushes that fit right in your pocket. Battery operated. Not expensive. They're great. Quips have spread through the family. My whole family is equipped with a Quip. <laughs> nice. Uh, I guess mine too. There's only two of us, but both of us have them. And maybe you're also a person who has gums. You want to protect your gums. Mm -hmm. But you also like gum. Now, I know this is confusing. Yeah. You know what? Let me clear this up for you, Carrie. I'm going to invent a new term. Let's call it chewy bits instead of gum. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got that idea. That's my idea. I'm really proud of my idea. (laughs) I think that might be a false memory. Um, Because you've got your gums in your mouth that are all around your teeth. But then you might also like gum, which we call chewy bits. And listen, chewy bits, there's something people chew as a way to relieve stress curb appetite, and most importantly, fresh in breath. But many people don't realize that chewy bits can also be a part of a healthy oral care routine. As part of that care routine, Quip has launched a new gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that will remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid. Do you know what we are saying? Do you understand? One word, three letters. Okay, I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) It's sugar-free and has tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories. And to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long-lasting mint flavor and crunchy tri-layer design. I really like that. You get that initial crunch, 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 and then it's Mm. nice and just chewy-like, you know, chewy bits. Okay, nice. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing. Come on, don't get ahead of yourself. But... This is a great support for your oral health. Pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush and refillable floss, Ross. And if you go to getquip.com slash oh no, right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash oh no, O-H-N-O, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash oh no. Quip, the good habits company. Well, Carrie, let's say your teeth are all nice and clean. How are you going to dirty them up again? You need to eat food, right? (laughs) Maybe we did this in the wrong order. (laughs) You got to eat food, people. At some point, you're not one of these breatharians who claims to be able to not eat. Well, if you are, please email me. But the way I would eat, if I were going to eat for the first time, I would probably do HelloFresh. That's such a good idea. Yeah, yeah, and most people are familiar with the idea of meal kits where they send mm-hmm. you the food and they send yeah. you in the instructions and you just you execute on this well-crafted plan and it's it's perfectly suited for times of pandemic. So I think oh, this has yeah. been even more popular within the last year for people to order food that just gets sent straight to their houses and for lazy cooks such as myself this is even better because you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouthwatering seasonal recipes. And again, they're delivered right to your door. And with HelloFresh, you've got that from America's number one meal kit. Wow. Oh, wow, 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 wow. Number one, you say? That's what I'm saying. Incredible. Well, HelloFresh offers 10 to 20 minute meals, low prep recipes, and quick breakfasts and lunches, perfect for your busy schedule. You the listener. And with 25 plus recipes to choose from each week, there's something... (laughs) What did I say? Oh, just, I love... You can leave this in if you want. Oh, 25 plus. I love that they said 25 plus. I wonder how many it is. (laughs) Well, maybe it changes from week to week. Maybe it changes. That's probably right. But it's always at least 25. (laughs) There's something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. And I I actually really like that process, kind of looking at here's what's coming. And you can Hmm. kind of say, you know what, actually, I don't want that this week. And for people like us, you can say, I want vegetarian options. And then you can see what's delivered and maybe say, you know what, I'm not wild about this 
this particular meal. Let's mm-hmm. swap that out and get a different one. Yeah, which also helps for people like you and me where, like, for me, I would prefer everything be as close to vegan as possible. So I can go through and be like, mm-hmm. eh, that's a really cheese-heavy thing. No, thanks. So you can sort of, like, tweak it within your preferences, which is really nice. Yeah, and I was really proud of myself. I had gotten this Mediterranean baked veggies meal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when HelloFresh shows up, then that's my opportunity to say, okay, I will cook this. I ordered the HelloFresh. And as I was getting ready to make this, I was thinking, you know what? I feel like this could use mushrooms. And I was proud of myself. I added mushrooms to the meal, mixed it up. I thought it was even more delicious uh, with the mushrooms. So I felt like, wow, look at me. I'm customizing things. (laughs) Everybody else is collectively rolling their eyes like, why is this a big deal? Why is Ross even talking about this? No, we're impressed. We're impressed. Uh, HelloFresh, remember that. That particular meal, you could add mushrooms. You don't have to. I'm sure it would still be good without it. But what Ross is saying is you can you can experiment. You can be your own mm-hmm. artist. You don't have to just follow the rules. It's not paint by number. Yeah, we don't paint inside the lines. We don't color inside the brain drawing. So listen, <laughs> go to HelloFresh.com slash Ono12. That's O-H-N-O and then the numbers one and two. And use code Ono12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. That's HelloFresh.com slash Ono12 and code Ono12. Oh no! Anyway, Elizabeth, you were saying about your teeth? I'm, I'm curious, how did this idea, this concept of repressed memory, that certain memories are so harmful and traumatic that we push them down, how did this get into society and become this popularly accepted myth? People usually say it's kind of a hand-me-down Freudian idea. Somewhere along the line, you know, Freud advocated these ideas that uh, we are repressing uh, significant childhood memories, but they're leaking and causing us to do problematic things. And we need to excavate these recalcitrant memories in order to cure ourselves. In more recent times, you know, I'm not quite sure. Somewhere in the mid to late 80s, people started advocating that uh, there was more sexual abuse around than people were admitting to. And if Mm. uh, you weren't admitting to it, maybe you were repressing your memory and Mm. it really did happen to you, but you didn't, you buried those memories and you need to um, excavate them. And so by the late 1980s, various believers in this repression theory Attorneys who wanted to help people sue other people based on repressed memories began going to their state legislatures to to overturn the statute of limitations that prevented them from going forward. And they succeeded, Hmm. starting with Washington State, 1989, uh, then California told its statute of limitations in 91, then a whole bunch of other states did. And now uh, you could sue your parents, your former neighbors, your other relatives, your anybody, if you claimed you repressed your memory and now the memory was back. Uh, And then we began to see thousands and thousands of lawsuits. So that's when things exploded with lawsuits Mm -hmm. in the early 90s. And then this fascinating thing happened where a number of people started to realize their memories were false And they turned around and sued their therapist for planting false memories. Right. And they started getting multi-million dollar verdicts from from juries. So it was just a wild, the wild west in in the land of litigation. Well, what about um, dissociation? So now it seems like the conversation is less about repression and more about dissociation. Are those basically two names for the same theory or uh, are those different in your mind? I hear that a lot uh, because because I think th- there was so much challenge to the concept of massive repression, and uh, maybe you can't find repression in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. People mm-hmm. start to say, "Well, we don't mean repression; we mean dissociation," because dissociation's all over the, the you know the DSM. Right. Um, but my my response to that is. I don't really care what you call it. First of all, dissociation is a great big umbrella term. It means a whole lot of things from very mild disconnects in memory to, to more serious ones. But I don't care what you, what you call it. Just show me the evidence 
that you could be raped between the ages of five and 16, be completely, repeatedly, completely unaware this, this happened to you, and then somehow reliably recover these memories in therapy when, a, a couple or two or three years later. What is the evidence for that? And I'm telling you, there is really no credible scientific support that memory is like routinely working like this, if ever. When I talk to people about this, and I generally hold your view, they will often come back with a particular guy's particular book. Do you want to guess who the guy is and what the book is? Well, I, I mean, the, the popular one that filtered into so many of these cases was uh, The Courage to Heal, but that's written by two women. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ellen Bass and Susan Davis, I think. Laura. No, Bessel. Oh, Laura, that's right. Laura Davis. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score keeps coming up in these conversations. You're shaking your head already. So my my understanding of his theory is that your brain can forget all of these horrible things that happened to you, but your body still retains them. And so you can kind of work backwards from your body's symptoms to this trauma. What do you make of that? Well, uh, he, he, can, he can spew those words all he wants, but <laughs> say, say to him just what I said before, show me proof that you can be raped for a decade and be completely unaware of this and reliably recover it later. Show me your proof. Is, and I, I, you know, I know what their proof is because I, I see these people on the opposite side of court cases and they'll come in and say, there are at least 70 studies that prove this. And so Loftus doesn't know what she's talking about. There's plenty of proof, but I know those studies and uh, they don't prove it. And in a university class, I can get my students to see that in a few weeks. What is offered as proof? And like, what are the most common types of evidence offered? And how would you re rebut that? I'll tell you the crown jewel. The crown jewel in the repression aficionados arsenal is a study by Linda Meyer Williams. So Linda Meyer Williams, back in the 70s, studied individuals where there was a report of sexual abuse or sexual assault that was made either to the police or to a hospital. So there are a bunch of reports from the 70s. And jump ahead a couple of decades, an average of 17 years later, she interviews some of these individuals who were under the age of 12 at the time that that initial report was made. She interviews these individuals for a couple of hours about their life in this urban city when they were a child. And after a two hour interview, 38% of them don't mention the incident hmm. that brought them to the police station or the hospital. Okay. People have claimed that see, 38% have repressed their memory. Mm. But why might some of these people not mentioned to Linda Meyer Williams, this incident, which she calls the index event, why might they not have mentioned? How about the fact that some of them were under the age of three at the time? Oh. They're not likely to remember anything that happened to them when they were one and two and three years old. Mm. How about the fact that maybe they didn't want to tell her? Yeah. There are just a number of reasons why people might not have mentioned these incidents uh, to the researcher when she's talking to them 20 years later. They were too young at the time. They didn't feel like telling her. Some of these incidents were relatively minor and these subjects had you know, more awful, more recent, maybe more horrific things that had happened to them later in their life. There's so many reasons why someone might not mention the incident. They weren't asked explicitly about it. They weren't shown right. the record and say, does this refresh your memory? And I'm guessing, uh, according to protocols, these people were anonymized. So there was no way to follow up on those specific cases. You're just talking about the general categories of ways that this could have been misconstrued, right? Well, we know, uh, we know a lot about these people because mm. uh, we know how many were under the age of three or oh, under okay. the age of six. We, we, of course, we don't know their names, but you know, we know we have data to demographic work information about them. We we know that from uh, the scientific report that they weren't explicitly asked about the event. They weren't shown the record. 
So, so. Though showing them the record might like then invite questions of whether you were tooling with their memory, no? I, I think the researcher probably had a good reason for not wanting to show them the record, didn't want to, maybe they wanted to forget, let them, let them forget. Um, right. Um, she probably had, had a, a reason that made sense to her. But from the memory point of view, you don't know they're repressed. Another study often cited by Harrison Pope from the Harvard Medical School is one in which when people were shown a record, it reminded them, they said, oh, yeah, I do remember that. Mm -hmm. So these failures to mention something Mm. are in no way proof that this (laughs) was all massively repressed. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I and mean, that's their the, that's their best study. And the most that could show is that you forgot. That still doesn't even prove repression, even if we accept that they don't remember it. That doesn't necessarily mean the brain, uh. you know, sections it off and said, don't remember this. It's too traumatic. <laughs> By some process that's beyond ordinary forgetting and remembering, because that's what's being claimed here. No, right. you're right. People, I mean, people certainly do forget actual experiences and they can be reminded of them we know that happens even even things that are awful can be not thought about for a long time and you can be reminded of them you just have to go to a high school reunion you can experience that for yourself yeah Yeah. (laughs) i would but now facebook has supplanted all of my high school reunion (laughs) i know hopefully we'll be back though yeah Here's hoping. Um, But speaking of differentiating between those two things, the most common question I got when I said on Twitter that I was going to be talking with you was, how do, is there anything I can do to tell if a memory is true or false? So I wanted to read you this, this passage from Richard McNally's Remembering Trauma and see if you agree with, um, with his thoughts here. He said, it's useful to distinguish between two very different types of recovered memory experiences. Some people may suddenly remember abusive events they had not thought about in years. When these memories come to mind, they might say, ah, I hadn't thought about that in ages, or ah, I thought I'd forgotten that. There's nothing extraordinary about such recollections. Other people may suddenly remember abusive events for the first time. They may think of themselves as having had a happy childhood and then suddenly, quote unquote, remember in adulthood that they were abused. This second kind of case raises serious concerns of the, quote, remembered events that they may have been imagined. Everything else being equal, the first kind of recovered memory is more likely to be authentic than the second kind. What do you think? Does that sound? Uh, You know, I read his book so long ago. I don't, you know, I'd like to see that passage in the, in the, you know, in in its full context. But sure, what is For the most part, I kind of agree with what, what you just said, that when when there is you know all kinds of evidence of that you had a happy childhood all kinds of wonderful father's day cards that say i love you you're the best father that anybody could ever have all Mm. kinds of diaries that don't have any indication of anything and then somebody goes into therapy and is exposed to a whole lot of suggestive things and now thinks that they were you know raped for a decade I think people need to be suspicious mm. about that um, and really, really scrutinize it and not uncritically embrace the accusation just because it's being made today. But you asked, is there anything anybody can do uh, to tell whether you're dealing with a real memory or one that's a product of some other process? And actually, we have looked at emotion. People can be just as emotional about mm. their, right. their false memories as true ones. They can be as confident about false ones as true ones. They can be as detailed. So these are not reliable features to be using, despite the fact that some right. of these uh, opposing experts that I've seen uh, will use the, uh, you know, I, I believed her because she cried when she told me the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be an indication that she believes it, but you could yes. also, she could she could be wrong. Right. I mean, and, and yeah. we're not talking about deliberate lying here. Right. We're talking, right. I mean, sometimes people are deliberately lying and occasionally it's hard to, it's hard to get the proof of that. But mm-hmm. every now and then in a case you get lucky and somebody has tape recorded a conversation <laughs> where yeah. an accuser says to somebody else, I'm going to melt this for all it's worth in terms of getting some money or, you know, something that might sure. indicate a deliberate lie. 
But I think the, the bigger problem is that individuals are led to believe and then to remember things uh, that didn't happen and, and to make these accusations based on a, a sincere belief. And that the therapists who hear these stories and, and are unaware of their own involvement in constructing them, they too believe, believe what they're hearing is real. That's why this is so hard to, to manage. So, you know, yeah. I, I guess this is a recommendation for everyone when you're in a situation that matters to document thoroughly, to record where you can, to take notes, to talk to people soon afterward. Um, are there any kind of takeaway lessons that, that you use in your life to sort of enhance your memory, to buttress it, to, to have reliable access uh, that you would recommend for others? Well, I do all kinds of things. I mean, because of what I know about memory. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember sometimes whether I t- took my vitamin in the morning. So now I put an object there right after I take the vitamin. And uh, it reminds me of, uh, that I've taken it already. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. If I uh, leave my sliding glass door open on the patio, I don't want to forget not to close it. So I move a piece of furniture. So it's in an odd position to remind me that door is still open. There there are all kinds of little tricks you can use depending on what your particular memory failure is. (laughs) Yeah. What about journaling? You know, it's so interesting to me that you mentioned that because right now the New Yorker magazine is um, a writer for the New Yorker. Rachel Aviv is, is working on a profile about me and my work. And as part of this, I um, gave her access to my journals, my diaries and journals from ages about 11 to 15. Hmm. And um, those journals and diaries have now caught a number of my relatives in mistaken memories. Hmm. So it's so fascinating (laughs) to me that, yep, that so fascinating to me that, uh, there they are, and I have the proof that what they're now saying is not accurate. So I, you might be, you might read this in a, in, a, in a short period of time if if this all gets included in this uh, profile. Hmm. Fascinating. Oh, great! Yeah, I take um, I I write a journal every day now in part because of this because I don't want to forget and misremember everything. So Ross, if I die unexpectedly, find my journals. Okay crack them open. Oh, and will it say who did it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, also, it's, I'm going to accuse you, just FYI. I'm going to say that you did it, Ross. Yeah. Oh, me or Elizabeth? Just, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? It's a toss-up. I'm going to blame both of you. All right. Well, she'll defend me in court. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Loftus. This has been so wonderful speaking with you. And uh, yeah, we'll have to tell you how all this Bob Larson stuff shakes out. Oh, at the I end. can't wait. You'll have to t- uh, send me a link and so I can watch the. Yeah. But I do have to say one thing to you. Um, I don't know when you're planning to air this, but you don't want Bob Larson to know you're on to him just yet. <laughs> well, so, the, well, <laughs> we got far enough with our investigation that we were OK if he found out, but he hasn't yet. So we just keep going. I know. But if you air this, then then you are giving yourself away. So <laughs> uh, we see what you're saying, but we have already aired 10 episodes and he still hasn't noticed. <laughs> you're kidding. He still <laughs> How am I, oh, well, um, can I watch some of these episodes then? Yeah. They're audio. Send me a link yeah. so I can watch yeah, what we'll, you've done. I'd love we'll, to see it. We'll send you the link. Oh, but absolutely. he's even used me in promotional materials in his emails. I'm on a YouTube video of his helping hold back a, a man possessed with a demon. It's pretty fun. I've called their office. I've emailed with them. Yep. Yeah, they're totally oblivious. They do not Google themselves. I got my completion certificate after we'd already released seven episodes. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, not a crackerjack operation. Yeah, that's just amazing. Well, he must be quite up there age-wise by now. Yeah. Yeah, almost 80. Uh, Yeah. No, 81. Late 70s or early 80s, yeah. Okay. Well, my goodness, uh, we could ask you so many more questions. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, well, great talking with you. I know you had to run. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, uh, we were so excited to talk to Elizabeth. She had to run right then and there. We had more questions, yeah. but we were so <laughs> happy to be able to to chat with her. It's always fun to talk to a professor because they'll have hard outs. And when they mean hard outs, they mean like 
no, it's three o'clock. I will hang up on you if I need to. And it's also fun to talk to a scientist because as you could tell throughout the interview, she would say, well, I haven't read that recently. Or, <laughs> you know, as I recall, or based on your description, you know, very uh, cautious language. You can tell when you're talking to a researcher. Yeah, totally. Well, when you say that, what it makes me think of is blank. <laughs> right. Her statements will hold up in a court of law. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was a super exciting experience. So uh, glad we got to talk to Dr. Elizabeth Loftus or Beth Loftus, as many call her. Who is one of the 100 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century, according to the Review of General Psychology in 2002. Whoa. Quick, 2002. name the other 99. Okay. Jean Piaget. Was he in the 20th century? I want to say yes. I think I, I think of 1800s of <laughs> This is stupid. But <laughs> I think of 1800s of them, but he might have died in the 1900s. Ross is Googling this. Well, this now matters we, now we to gotta us know. and to nobody else. Da, 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 da. He was born in 1896. So I'm oh, sure okay. he I'm sure he published some influential papers at, <laughs> at three, but he went on to some some good work in the rest of the 1900s. <laughs> even even once he was past the single digits in age, he still did some good work. A bunch of men are coming to mind. Well, it's good to have Elizabeth Loftus on the list. Yes, yes, I'm sure there are many women on the list too. We'll look at it sometime. We'll do our deep dive of the hundred most eminent psychologists. Of the 20th it's going to be our most popular episode. <laughs> And we're just glad to have such a brilliant person on. Uh, so thank you, Elizabeth Loftus, for all your work and for being on the show. Thank you also to our theme music composer, Brian Keith Dalton. Thank you also to Ian Kramer, our administrative manager. And if you want to support us and our ongoing investigations, we've got some fun stuff coming up. I think uh, we're going to have a really fun episode next week. I think yeah. you will all enjoy. Um, you can support us at MaximumFun.org. That's our podcast family. A slash join and become a member of our fun, maximum fun family. Fun. It's the most fun you can have. It's right there in the name. Member, family, join. You can also follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Ono oh Podcast. And on Facebook, we're at facebook.com forward slash onrack, O N R A C. That stands for Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie. Also, I should mention we've got our fan page, Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie on Facebook. And I say our, it's, it's not run by us at all, it's run by. Mm-mm. Aaron Street. Fan run, fan loved. And Sam Stefanitsen, the administrators over there and moderators. So thank you to them. It's become like a really bustling community. And I sometimes see the posts there and uh, and join in. So anyways, uh, thank you to them for running that other community on Facebook. I'm sure it's lovely. It's all true. I haven't been there once, but that's only because I, I avoid getting uh, too many inputs. But yeah. Um, it yeah. is a lot of input. Yeah. And if you don't mind, uh, please don't tag me on post there. <laughs> no one should feel guilty for having done so, but it creates another to-do list item in my life and it's a little stressful. So, you know, I'll see things if I can there. Yeah. But that's really cool because then they can share, yeah, what the, what their experience of the show is with each other, which is really neat. Yeah. You're all a part of our friendship now. Yay. You can also support us by leaving positive reviews wherever you find this podcast. If it allows you to leave reviews, leave one. And, you know, you can just give it a five-star review without saying anything if you're just not ready to write your epic pee-in to Ono, Ross, and Carrie. You can at least uh, just uh, bump those ratings so other people look at us and say, like, wow, that looks legit. I should listen to that. People like it. Yeah. If you are an expert on the other side of this conversation, if you are a, say, a trauma expert who wants to defend the idea of recovered memory, I would love to talk to you. You can email us at info at onopodcast.com. And remember... From Dr. Elizabeth Loftus's TED Talk. In one project in the United States, information has been gathered on 300 innocent people, 300 defendants who were convicted of crimes they didn't do. They spent 10, 20, 30 years in prison for these crimes, and now DNA testing has proven that they're actually innocent. And when those cases have been analyzed, Three-quarters of them are due to faulty memory, faulty eyewitness memory. Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we're the hosts of One Bad Mother, a podcast about parenting. 
Parenting is hard, and we have no advice, but we do see you doing it. Honk if you like to do it. <laughs> Didn't we have a bumper sticker a while back that was like, yeah. honk if you did it? That's what it I was. I think it was honk if you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Why did we not ever make this? those? We did make life. them. I did think they're still in the Max Fun store. <laughs> honk, honk, you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Biz. So are you. Each week, we'll be here to remind you that you're doing a good job. You can find us on MaximumFun.org. Honk, honk. Toot, toot. One, two, one, two, three, five. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors and... Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor and I'm a medical enthusiast and we create... Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. And lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.